Lord, we just thank you for meeting with us here this morning. And Lord, we praise you and we thank you that we can come to you, that you love the praises of your people. I pray, Lord, now as we look at your word, Lord, would you speak through me? Would it not be my words, but it be your words? And I pray as a people, we would be hungry to hear from you, not just to hear your word, though, but to obey what you have for us. Let us be transformed by the filling of your spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, July 4th, 2014, that was the day I planned to ask Kate to marry me. I had it all figured out. See, what do you normally do on the 4th of July? You go see fireworks. So that day, we were planning to go to a barbecue down by the beach at a friend's house. So I said, why don't we go to that party? We'll go there. When that wraps up, we'll, we'll go out and grab dinner somewhere. And then instead of going all the way back towards where you live to watch the fireworks, why don't we watch the fireworks in Long Branch on the beach? So I kind of played it off in a nonchalant kind of way. I had it all figured out. Well, I even looked at the weather. It wasn't supposed to rain or anything unusual like that. So I'm like, okay, as long as I get there before the fireworks begin, then we're good. So no, no issues. We went to dinner, had a nice time, got down to the beach about it, just about an hour before they were supposed to begin. Well, it was a fairly hot day, but if you know anything about spending time on the beach, that quite often you can have a very hot day and it can be very cool, especially if there's a breeze coming off the ocean. Well, that was the case this time. And of course, um, I don't know if any husbands here ever, if their wives ever complain about how cold it is, when it doesn't seem to be that cold. Well, this was Kate. Um, she was quite cold that evening. And it, initially she just uh, mentioned it a few times. And as the clock ticked, she continued to complain and complain. And, and finally she was pleading can we just please go? And so um, eventually, you know, I, I convinced her, well, guess what? The car's not that far away. You know, the, the fireworks, once they begin, we've come all this way. They'll be over in a few minutes, and you'll be back in a hot car in a short time. So I, I smoothed it all out. And so once the fireworks began, I got down on one knee. I asked her to marry me, and the rest is history. But I have to tell you, if she kept protesting, it was starting to get a little bit awkward. Where like I felt like I was almost being mean to her, making her sit there and suffer in the cold. And if she protested just a little bit more, I would have had to come up with a plan B in order to um, ask her to marry me on another evening. But I wasn't really as in control of the situation as I thought I was. I may have had all the details worked out. And we had even talked about getting married. Uh, we had gone ring shopping, but even though all those things were in place, I wasn't like I was thinking she's going to say no now, even though all those things were in place, my plans to control the situation were almost completely ruined because of a cool breeze on a hot day. Who would have guessed? Well, today's passage is going to deal with some issues of control. So I've titled today's message, Who is in Control? Who is in Control? And I would like to share with you Five truths that we can see in this passage about control. And we're going to be in the chapter of John. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. In John, we're going to be in John chapter 18, verses 1 to 11. So if you have your Bibles, if you take a moment to turn to John chapter 18, and we're going to look at verses 1 to 11. 
he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they, rep- and they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, he drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Well, Jesus' arrest in this chapter, it occurs the same evening as Jesus' last supper with his apostles. In fact... Earlier in the evening, Jesus had given his final discourse in the high priestly prayer, which we were looking at last week, that Pastor Marvin, as he's been guiding us through the book of John. Now, while John doesn't mention this in his gospel, if we look at the other gospels, just after that teaching segment and the prayer, um, Jesus and his apostles went to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus asked them to stay awake and to pray. Now, where, that's where Jesus says, not my will, but your will be done. And he asks, if the Father, if, if it's your will, may this cup be taken from me, but not my will, but yours. So that's kind of where we are in, in terms of a timeline. Well, John, in his gospel, he jumps right from the teaching-preaching segment. And he jumps right into just giving us a little bit of background about the fact that they had gone to this garden. And he gets right into the action of when Jesus is arrested. So that's kind of where we are in this passage. Now the first truth we see about control in John chapter 18 is that God is in control. And we know that, we often say that, but let's see what this scripture teaches us about God being in control. You see, in this passage we see a struggle for control being played out. Now of course we know the outcome of this is Jesus is arrested, he stands before the high priest and Pontius Pilate, and then he's crucified the next day. See, the religious, religious leaders had plotted for some time to get rid of Jesus. And in the past, Jesus thwarted their attempts to arrest him. If we go back earlier in the book of John, John 10, 39, we're told that there was an attempt to seize Jesus, but he escaped their grasp. Earlier in John chapter 7, Jesus didn't go to Jerusalem for the feast with his disciples, but he had gone on his own later quieter because it wasn't his time yet so if you look at this from the perspective of the religious rulers they'd finally outsmarted Jesus and not only that they have him trapped and they even used one of his 12 apostles to betray him 
Now, of course, this same evening, if we go back to chapter 13, we need to understand Peter's perspective to see his attempts to control this situation. We know the issue wasn't that Peter didn't love Jesus. He was certainly willing to follow him. But we also see, if we look throughout the Gospels, that Peter often has a reluctance to trust Jesus. This is not the first time we have this type of issue with Peter. In the book of Matthew 16, it says, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. But Peter took Jesus aside and rebuked him for this. And that's where Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. And of course, this same evening that Jesus is arrested, it was this, we have to think about what Jesus had said just earlier in the evening in chapter 13. See, Peter was initially reluctant to let Jesus wash his feet. Later, Jesus tells Peter that he cannot follow him now, but will do so afterwards. This, of course, is where Peter makes his famous statement that he will lay down his life for Jesus. And that prompted Jesus to tell him that he would deny him three times before the rooster crows or before the early morning. So in um, John 18, 8, Jesus says, So if you seek me, he's talking to the crowd, if you seek me, let these men go. Now it would be easy to miss in this text But Jesus is not asking, he's not pleading, he's not begging for the disciples to be let go. He's, He's issuing a command. He'd already secured their safety. We could chalk up Peter's actions by striking the high high priest's servant um, with the sword as as an act of ignorance. But we already know Jesus had been quite clear with his disciples about his path to the cross. Perhaps Peter wanted to prove to Jesus that he wouldn't deny him. It seems, though, that Peter wanted to get Jesus to stand up for himself. Because obviously he didn't think he could defeat them himself. So maybe he thought if he went ahead and struck, Jesus would follow his his, um, agenda. And of course, um, Peter's ready to charge, even despite the fact that Jesus didn't give him permission. It might seem Peter could have messed up Jesus' plans after all. Now think about this, it's one thing for the crowd to let the disciples go, because they were innocent bystanders, and essentially the crowd had been given permission to arrest Jesus, not specifically his apostles. So it would have been easy for Jesus to probably secure their release comparatively to himself. But when Peter goes ahead and on the offensive takes out his sword and strikes one of them, you know, that changes the uh, scenario a lot, right? You would think that maybe... Uh, Peter had totally messed up Jesus' plans to allow the the apostles to be safe. But we can see Peter's attempt to control the situation, um, it doesn't matter what his intentions were, his attempt to control the situation didn't have an effect on Jesus being in control. So I think like Peter sometimes, if we're dominated by fear, we often then feel that we have to be in control of things. Because fear tends to lead to trying to take control of things that aren't ours to take control of. Now, if we look at this situation from Jesus' perspective, we can see he was in control the whole time. Earlier in the evening, think about this. Jesus identified Judas as the one who would betray him in front of the disciples and even told Judas to go do what he was going to do quickly. 
And Jesus proceeded to lead his disciples to a familiar location in the garden. In fact, in a place where they likely would have been walled in when the soldiers approached. A place that Judas was well aware of because he had gone there with Jesus many other times. It says in, in chapter 18, verse 4, that Jesus knew all that would happen to him. Yet immediately he secures the release of his apostles. By asking them twice, whom do you seek? The officers naturally respond by naming him. And they called him Jesus of Nazareth. For it was Jesus specifically that they had been given permission to arrest. And then Jesus commands them to let these men go. If we read this passage quickly, it's very easy to skip over an important point that happens in verse 6. First, we notice that Jesus' response is, I am he. And this could also be translated as I am, which would have been previously been a claim to deity, to being God. When God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush and Moses asked um, him, what is your name? He said, I am that I am, or the God that is. If we think about... Um, um, when, so therefore, when Jesus uh, said earlier in John chapter 8, Jesus had said, before Abraham was, I am, what did the crowds do? They picked up stones to throw at him because it, that statement was a claim to deity. They drew back, think about this, and they fell to the ground. That's kind of a strange thing. Now we can only speculate as to what occurred when Jesus said these words. But apparently this crowd... They got a glimpse of his power, and they were so afraid of him. Think about this, a large crowd, likely several hundred people, with weapons. They're afraid of Jesus when he speaks these words. They even fall back and fall to the ground. And maybe it was that display of power of Jesus that made Peter confident that he could just go ahead and charge, and then Peter would take, or Jesus would take control of the situation. And he could start lopping off ears, too, I don't know. Make no mistake, Jesus was control of the situation. Had it been his will, he could have demanded his own release, not just the disciples, just as he had, wasn't going to allow himself to be arrested earlier in his ministry. So how can we apply this to ourselves? What can we learn from this? You see, even when things or situations seem out of control, God's ultimate purposes cannot be thwarted. His purposes cannot be thwarted. And whatever seemingly impossible things happen to us or we find ourselves in, God is still in control even if we don't understand how. You see, we also see in this passage that God uses the unexpected to accomplish his purposes. That's your second point. God uses the unexpected to accomplish his purposes. If we're looking for a mission statement from Jesus for why he came and what his purpose was, we might turn to Matthew chapter 20, verse 20, which says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Satan, the religious rulers, Judas's best efforts, they did not succeed in thwarting God's plan, but they were actually a fulfillment of prophecy. Think about that. So in their attempts to get in, get in the way of God's plan, they, in a way, they were used by God in fulfillment of Scripture to, to establish the Lord's plans. In spite of what their intentions were, God used them for his own purposes. 
Now think about this. Jesus could have orchestrated a situation in which he was only, only he was present when arrested. Choosing a location um, and not having his disciples present. But maybe, maybe the reason that he did this the way he did was to show his disciples his power over the situation. And so that they could see that it was his decision to allow himself to be arrested. Throughout the Old Testament, we see examples of this principle of God using the unexpected. He used, he used uh, foreign nations to punish Israel and bring them back to repentance. Under the Roman Empire, much persecution was aimed at the church from the emperor down to the authority that was still possessed by the Jewish leaders. Yet, what historians would call the Roman peace allowed relatively safe travel throughout the large Roman Empire. And this helped Paul and others take the gospel all over the Roman Empire and the spread of the early church. What do we see today? Today we see the gospel advancing in places like China, a country where Christians are really being persecuted, where churches are being destroyed, and Christians are hiding underground, and sometimes pastors are being arrested. But you know where the church is not growing? in one of the safest, most religiously free places in the history of the world, here in the United States, where we can worship freely. You see, this principle of God using the unexpected to accomplish his purposes, it's true in the macro and the large world events, but it's also true in our individual lives. 2 Corinthians 1.4 says, The Father comforts us in our afflictions, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted with. You know, we tend to think the Christian life ought to be free from trouble. We, we may not say that, and we think, no, that's not true. It, 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 we're going to have trouble. But quite often when trouble comes, the temptation is to view it as an obstacle to being obedient to God or doing what the Lord has called us to. See, we don't, know, we don't know why God lets some things to happen, but consider in Philippians 1.12, Paul talks about his imprisonment and how being in prison actually helps, helped him advance the gospel. So whatever you're going through, by all means, continue to pray for deliverance. Continue to pray for the Lord's healing. But in the midst of it, don't miss out on what, the God, may, what God may be doing in your life and wanting to use you for you see, God, just prior to Jesus' arrest, if we look in Matthew 26, Jesus had taken Peter, James, and John with him to watch and pray. And three times they decided to sleep instead, despite Jesus catching them repeatedly. Once he specifically addressed Peter, he said, You couldn't watch with me one hour. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh weak. This short interlude of time prior to Jesus' arrest, which Peter was asked to pray, was right after Jesus gave the high priestly prayer and his teaching about how he would go away to prepare a place, about the coming of the Holy Spirit. And so many truths that could have been a guide to Peter later in the very same evening. And if we want to understand Peter's failure in John 18, we need to look back to his prior failure in Matthew 26. Literally just minutes before, it was an unwillingness to pray. 
Remember earlier that evening, Jesus said in John 15, abide in me, which also translates remain in me. He says that apart from me, you can do nothing. He didn't say, listen to my message, say say a short prayer once in a while, and then you can just trust yourself to do the wise thing in stressful situations. His command was to abide, to remain in me. How do we apply this? Well, are we placing our trust in our own abilities or our own knowledge of Scripture even? Are we confident in ourselves to resist temptation in the various forms that it comes? But if we're going to take Jesus at his word and truly trust him, we're going to do what he says and we're going to abide in him. A short prayer here and there is not going to suffice. We will continue to pray to God. We will listen for his voice remind ourselves of his word throughout our days and live out, live out our lives in complete dependence moment by moment, even in mundane situations, knowing that we can't cease to abide in him and expect to have the power to live the Christian life. So God wants our trust, but God also wants our obedience. We already looked at how Peter didn't merely understand the situation but it stems from a lack of trust in Jesus and in turn a reluctance to obey him. Peter didn't understand, or maybe he didn't want to understand, why Jesus was giving himself up. Peter knew about Jesus' power. He heard Jesus say plenty about his coming kingdom. So in Peter's mind, Jesus getting arrested, it wasn't going to end well. There's nothing good that's going to come of Jesus being arrested. What's interesting is if we look at this account from Luke's perspective and Luke's gospel, um, it indicates that the disciples actually said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And it says one of them, whom we know is Peter, one of them um, struck struck the servant and cut off his right ear. And Jesus has responded, no more of this, and he actually healed the guy's ear. But notice that Peter did not wait for permission, even though the disciples even asked, shall we strike with the sword, Peter went ahead and did it without even waiting for Jesus to respond. Now, maybe we shouldn't be too hard on Peter, because I think we do this ourselves sometimes. I mean, there are black and white situations where it's easy to define sin. For example, if the Bible says don't steal, what's the obedient thing to do? We don't go out and rob a bank or rob a store. It's, it's pretty straightforward. But where I think it's much easier for us to not trust or obey are when we face certain situations in which we believe something needs to be said or something needs to be done. And we're tired of waiting for the Lord to do something. So we take it in our own hands to act without first seeking the Lord. Because we don't see the point of doing nothing. How often, like Peter, we neglect to seek God's will first. We've neglect abiding in Jesus, and then we'll spend tons of time analyzing the situation in our own minds or complaining about it to someone else. And then we throw out a short, Lord, give me wisdom prayer, and then what do we do? We go right back to our own schemes and our own plans, as if now somehow we have the Lord's blessing when we've never sought him in the first place. Trust and obedience, they go together. I almost made that another sermon point because I think it's, it's important. Trust and obedience, they go together. And as often as God uses the unexpected, 
We don't know his purposes. Jesus, after all, he invested much time teaching and shepherding Judas. Also what? So Judas could turn around and betray him. So from a human standpoint, Jesus wasted his time on Judas. He could have just found someone else to be his 12th disciple who would actually not betray him. Or just gone with 11. He probably would have done just fine with 11. And I remember reading this story about this 19th century missionary. He had spent 15 years unsuccessfully trying to plant a church in a remote country that had no gospel presence at all. No Christians. And in his, what he thought was failure, he left. And um, a half century after his death, there were other missionaries that went there. And they discovered that there was actually a network or a small network of local churches. And when they looked into it to figure out where they had come from, they discovered that the one church, there was this one guy who planted the church. And this guy came to Christ um, through the ministry of this failure of a missionary who left over half a century prior to that. So God uses the unexpected. He wants us to trust and obey him because we never know how he's going to use us. But we also learn in this passage that God is willing to use us despite our mistakes. He's willing to use us despite our mistakes. In John 18, Peter tried to interfere with Jesus' plan to not only save him and the other disciples from being arrested and perhaps killed, but he tried ultimately to interfere with the very purpose for which Jesus came. That's a big deal, right? This wasn't the first time. As we already mentioned, Peter had rebuked Jesus when Jesus had talked about the suffering, many things, and being killed and being raised on the third day. The very purpose that Jesus had come to save us from our sins, to die in our place on the cross, Peter was actually trying to interfere with that. We haven't even talked about Peter's next failure. The same night, Peter will deny Jesus three times before the rooster crows. So think about this. Um, we know Peter... Jesus even told Peter that he would do this, and Peter still went ahead and denied him three times. The very night, earlier in the evening, Peter was willing to rush to violence and trying to pressure Jesus into a physical confrontation with the crowd. A few hours later, he's too afraid to admit he's one of Jesus' people, Jesus' apostles, to people who weren't even trying to arrest him. Now, before Peter did any of these things, we know Jesus was aware of all things. In Matthew 16, Jesus had said to him, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. See, Peter's later mistakes, they didn't disqualify him from being used by the Lord. Nor do our previous mistakes disqualify us from being used from, by the Lord either. If we keep reading in the book of John, we see that after Jesus rises from the dead and before his ascension to heaven... What does he tell Jesus? He tells, what does he tell Peter? He tells Peter to feed his sheep. He still wanted to use Peter to shepherd the flock. In the, in the book of Acts, we see that Peter was the key, a key person. He was used to open the door of the gospel to not just the Jewish people, but to all the Gentiles, which means all of us in the whole world. And he used Peter as the leader of the Jerusalem church. Now, if you've had mistakes in the past, we all have, the Lord can still use you and desires to use you. Now, this isn't to say that there aren't sometimes consequences we face 
in this world from past mistakes. Sometimes these consequences can even create barriers to some of the things we could do for the kingdom. For example, in recent years, there have, there have been a number of megachurch pastors who resigned for one reason or another in shame. Now, chances are most of them will never be again be in the same type of leadership position on that scale. But if they're repentant, God still desires to use them, even if it's in a different capacity than they were used before. But here's the warning. One way or another, God will use them, even if for no other reason to serve as a negative example for others not to follow. In our passage today, there are two apostles, not just one that failed Jesus. We've spent a lot of time picking on Peter. Judas is the obvious one. But both of them, on some level, regretted their actions. Judas later had some remorse, but instead of repenting and being willing to be used by the Lord in whatever way he still could, he decided to just take his own life. Where Peter repented, he turned from his past mistakes and sins and was willing to serve the Lord. And then and even think about the life of Paul. He, he began by persecuting Christians and the Lord used him as the primary missionary of the early church. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Sometimes we as Christians, we can use our past mistakes as a reason to not serve the Lord wholly in the present. On the surface, that statement that you hear sometimes people say, what use does God have for me? It sounds humble, but oftentimes it's used to mask pride. So may I encourage you today that no matter what you have done in your past, what abilities you have or what abilities you think you lack, the Lord loves you. He still desires to use you for his purposes and to build his kingdom. So this morning we've looked at five truths of control from John 18. We said God is in control. God uses the unexpected to accomplish his purposes. God wants our trust. He wants our obedience. And he's willing to use us despite our mistakes. So maybe this morning the Holy Spirit is convicting you of a specific area in your life where you need to give him control. Maybe it's a specific sin issue. Maybe it's just that you've been trusting in yourself. But I encourage you today to take the step of obedience. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you from, for your word. We, we praise you for being a God who is in control. Lord, we, we know that you use unexpected situations to accomplish your purposes. And even then, it doesn't seem like you're in control. You truly are. You know what we're going to say and do before we even do it. You called us when, even though you knew we would make mistakes going forward. And your mercies are new every morning. And you want us to trust you. And we want that trust to lead to obedience. And Lord, you want to use us despite our past mistakes for your glory. Lord, I pray you would help us to submit our lives to you so that you may be glorified. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.